I didn't know anything about I'd never heard of the Medal of Honor. Didn't even know such a thing existed. Even the day I received it, I still didn't know what it was. Welcome to Patriots of the Corps. I'm Thad Forrester. This podcast exists because of my little brother, Mark Forrester. He was angered by the attacks on 9-11, so he joined the military to help rid the world of terrorists. On September 29, 2010, he was killed on his first deployment. From his death notification to the dignified transfer ceremony, his viewing, funeral, and subsequent memorials, I was amazed at the new world of warriors we met. These patriots have become close to our family and been huge supports. They stood out because of their willingness to voluntarily fight evil. They believed in freedom. Because of their actions, I started this podcast to interview great Americans who serve their country and communities. Thank you for tuning in. Well, Mr. Williams, I wanted to get some background information on you first and uh, kind of build up to to your time in the military and, and after the military. But, you know, I, I wondered about growing up, how the Depression affected your family. Yes, I uh, I was from a large family. There were 11 in the family. I was the last of the 11. And uh, we were farm people. Uh, we lived uh, out in the country. We had uh, a dairy farm. My father started a dairy farm when I was about, uh, I guess, four or five years old. And I was born and raised on on the dairy farm. We, uh, our product primarily was uh, house-to-house delivery of milk. Uh, In those days, it was delivered in glass bottles, pints or quarts. And we had a route uh, in town, which was about seven miles from our farm. And we had a little Model A, uh, Model T pickup Ford at first. And then uh, my father finally got enough money ahead to get a Model A pickup Ford. And uh, so we would take milk to town every morning. And take the milk to the house. We had a particular route, and the people uh, would call and say they wanted one quart of milk or a pint of cream or uh, chicken or whatever, and we would deliver that house to house. uh, During the summer months, when we were not in school, why uh, we would there would generally be two of us, two boys. Daddy'd be driving, and two boys, one standing on each side of the pickup truck on what we knew as a running board. That most kids don't even know what that means anymore. But um, we would take the quart of milk, run to the house, and set it on the porch or on the stoop or on the step, and pick up the empty bottles and run back to the truck. And that's how we delivered the. The produce, and we did that every morning. I guess you and, got pretty efficient with it, didn't you? Y- y'all could do it, you know, pretty quickly. You had a system. Yes, down. absolutely. And once uh, once the route was established, and and people would normally get about the same thing in the way of quarts or pints or whatever they wanted, uh, except on holidays. When a holiday came, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or uh, Memorial Day, when they would have larger groups in their home, then they would order extra stuff. 
because they're going to need extra stuff to take care of the extra people. Then when school started, why, uh, we're boys, of course, uh, and uh, we'd have to go to school. So uh, the girls never did do that. that. That was not part of their job. It was a boy's job to, to deliver the, the milk to the houses. But when school started, why, of course, then uh, dad and mom, mom would go with them a lot. And uh, as the brothers got out of school or quit school, and most of us quit at 16, because there was no high school in the community and there was no bus service that picked you up and took you, and we only had one vehicle, and that was the work vehicle. So most of us just quit at 16 years old when we didn't have to go to school anymore. So that's how I grew up. And uh, the uh, school, we had a one-room school until I was grad until I got through the fourth grade, and then they built uh, a new school and I had two rooms for it, and uh, first to the fourth would go in one room, and then fifth to the eighth would go in the other room. Uh, I had uh, the same school teacher. I never will forget her because she had a tremendous impact on my life, Naoma Morgan, Miss Naoma Morgan. She never married. She was just a school teacher, and she's the one that taught me to love my country, to respect my flag, and how to say the Pledge of Allegiance, and all those things that my folks didn't have any time to do. So, well, did uh, a lot of people your age or from your area uh, join the military? Yes. When when Pearl Harbor happened, <clears throat> uh, with during the peace uh, or the uh, Depression years. A few people had uh, a radio. We did not. We didn't have a radio. I had one uncle who uh, happened to work in a factory, Owens, Illinois, glass factory. Wasn't very big, but uh, he had a set natural regular income, so he had a radio. And they lived about a half a mile from my house. So we'd go to his house to listen to the radio. But we got no news. There was no news coming over the radio to tell us anything of what was going on in the world. And my brother next to me, uh, he and I were closer than I was to any of the other brothers, but he joined what was known as the Civilian Conservation Corps. We called it the three C's. And at 16 years old, you could join uh, the C's without parent consent. So he joined the three C's, and we had a number of uh, those camps around over the state of West Virginia. So he went to a camp in West Virginia, oh, maybe 60 miles from our home. And when I got to be 16, uh, since he was uh, in the CCs and earning $21 a month, he had some money. I didn't have any. And if uh, if we had a dime, we were we felt good. Uh, so I decided I'm going to join the CCs also. Uh, um, 
our mother was very unhappy with us, but uh, she couldn't stop us. Uh, my, my father died when I was 11, so uh, at 16, you were pretty much on your own. And uh, jobs were just impossible to obtain. So I joined the CC to earn, to, to get some money, and thinking I would go to the same camp my brother Gerald did, but they sent me to a different camp, to another city. And I was there for a short period of time, and then the whole group of us, and there were boys in there from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania. There were about 165 of us in that camp. They loaded us aboard a train and sent us all the way to Montana. Hmm. So I was uh, 17 years old when, uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. And, of course, uh, we... The the boys in that camp had no idea where Pearl Harbor was, never heard tell of it. So the only thing we knew is what they told us, that America had been bombed. And uh, at that point, they offered us uh, about three options. If you were over 18, and I was not, you could go from the three C's directly into the Army on an enlistment. But if you were under uh, 18, then you would have had to have parent consent to go into the Army. And the other option was that you could request termination of your contract, and we had year-by-year -year contracts. Uh, you could terminate your contract and go home for the purpose of going into military service. And that's what I selected. I, I wanted to go home and go in the United States Marine Corps. So what was your reaction when you found out about Pearl Harbor? Well, the only thing we knew was that people, America had been bombed and people had been killed. Other than that, we didn't know anything. Uh, I'd never heard of the South Pacific Ocean. I didn't even know we had one. Uh, I think I knew that we had an Atlantic Ocean because in school we'd been taught something about a large ship that had hit an iceberg and sunk. But that's all we knew. And, of course, oceans didn't mean a thing to us. <laughs> didn't have any meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you went home and you joined the Marines. Well, I attempted to. I was still only 17 when I got home, and uh, my mother was still struggling trying to keep that farm together. As I said, my dad died when I was 11, so she's trying to keep that farm together. And two of my brothers had already been drafted. So she just was in terrible straits trying to keep the farm going because she couldn't find anybody to work. Uh, those people that were uh, eligible for draft, that or they were being drafted, and those that were 4F, we called it, they were not 
physically qualified for the military service, most of them couldn't do farm work. They couldn't work 10, 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. So uh, she was having a struggle, and she would not sign my paper as a 17-year-old. But then I reached 18 in October of 1942, and I went into the Marine Corps to go into the Marines. I have said many times, I did not go into the Marines to kill people. I didn't know anything about war. I had no concept of what war was like, uh, that people shot each other. That just never did register, I guess. So my purpose of going in the Corps was to protect my country and to protect my freedom. And my thinking was that everybody going into the Army and the Marines and the Navy and all those would stay right here in the United States of America just to protect America so a people that I'd never heard tell of, from a country I'd never heard tell of, couldn't take our country away from us. Uh, Yeah, interesting. So once I graduated boot camp, in California, it was then that I really began to be educated that we're going overseas. We didn't know where overseas was, but we're going overseas to fight a people called Japanese. I still didn't understand it. There's, uh, I know there's a lot to your career, and before we get to, to Iwo Jima, it is there anything that stands out in your time serving experience that, or I may ask you this, is the Medal of Honor incident, you know, in Iwo Jima, is that, does that stand out the most for you, or was there another more impactful time while you were in the Marines? No, that was the, that was the most uh, impactful time uh, because uh, I was, when I arrived, on the island of Guadalcanal, which had already been taken by the Marines and secured, and we had a lot of Navy people there, we had Marines there, we had some Army there, and they had an air base, Army air base there. Uh, When I landed there, I knew nothing about combat, having never been in it. So one of the first things that happened to me was... uh, Number one, I was a rifleman. Every Marine is trained to be a rifleman. So that if uh, he's needed on the line, even though he might be a baker, (laughs) he still knows how to fight with a rifle. So when I arrived on Guadalcanal, early on, we got a shipment of flamethrowers. We had never heard of flamethrowers. We didn't know what they were. They came in a great big crated box, and when we opened them, here was a thing with three tanks on it, a hose connected to the tank, and a and a we called it a gun hooked to the hose. There was a manual in there that told us all of the parts, how to take it apart and how to put it back together, but no instructions of how do you use it. There was no manual in there to tell you how are you supposed to use this thing. And 
brand new. We'd never seen one before, so we began actually experimenting. Uh, I was a rifleman, but I was volunteered by my gunnery sergeant. He he just selected uh, uh, seven of us, six individuals plus myself. Uh, I was a corporal at the time, so I was a high, one rank higher than the, the PFC and privates, and he just selected uh, six, uh, seven of us, me and six others, as a special weapons unit. <laughs> and we began training them how to use demolition, how to blow things up, and how to burn things up with a flamethrower. The, fla- the first... Uh, element that we got to use in the flamethrower was a phosphorus powder. Uh, We would mix that powder with uh, four and a half gallons of gasoline and it would turn into a gel, almost like jello, a little thicker than jello, but we just called it a phosphorus gel because we didn't have the other name for it. Mm -hmm. But once you... uh, we had a lighter on the end of the gun, so you'd light the lighter, shoot the flame, or shoot the uh, fuel through it, and it would catch on fire as it left the gun. And then when it hit the target, it's burning and it would stick. How how heavy were these flamethrowers? Huh? How heavy were they? The, they were the... seventy pounds. Wow. Okay. And if you, they're four and a half gallon of fuel, but if you opened it up and just shot it without letting the trigger off, uh, it would last about 72 seconds. So, so how long did you train using it before you actually used it in battle? Well, we, we got those in uh, January of 44, and we hit Guam to take Guam back in July. So during that period of time, we trained and changed all kinds of uh, fuel in order to get something that we, at least my gunnery sergeant, thought was a whole lot more effective. And we ended up eventually with uh, a mixture of diesel fuel and 130-octane airplane gasoline. So it was it burned at about... 3,500 degrees Fahrenheit, they said, and uh, it was uh, very deadly in that it was extremely hot, and uh, it didn't burn bodies up, but naturally set the clothes on fire and took all the oxygen out of the air, and people collapsed because a big ball of flame hit them, and they're gone. Well, what did you know about about Iwo Jima before you got there? Not a thing. (laughs) After we secured Guam, we stayed on Guam then from August until February when we left to go to Iwo Jima. But we got aboard ship. We had no idea where we were going. And uh, after we got out into the ocean, then they called all of us together and told us that uh, we were going to a place called Iwo Jima. They had a board with a diagram of the island drawn on it, uh, outlined, and told us that uh, 
It was uh, two and a half miles wide. It was five miles long. Uh, the campaign would probably last about three days. Uh, we were a reserve unit. We may not even get off ship. So we had no intelligence about Iwo Jima at all. We didn't know they had 22,000 Japanese on that little island. Well, how quickly did you find that out? We didn't know. We, at least my outfit, uh, we didn't know anything about numbers. Had no idea that all of that came out after the the campaign was over and the island was secured. So we had no idea how many were there. We didn't know that they had somewhere between 14 and 19 miles of tunnel hollowed out in that island. We didn't know that. So we had no intelligence whatsoever on the island. Wow. Why was capturing Iwo Jima so important? Well, <clears throat> number one, it was only 600 miles from Tokyo. And the bombers, B-29s, flying from Tinian and Guam and Saipan, going to bomb Japan in an effort to get them to surrender and quit, they had to pass within a few miles of that island because of the fuel that took the uh, fuel to go and come and even extra tanks they put extra tanks on the planes that they would drop once they were empty but the Japanese had air bases on Iwo Jima fighter planes so they were shooting down RB-29s as they were either going or coming from Japan so the island was important to get rid of that airfield and to have a place where the B-29s could set down if they had an emergency on the way back to their base. And somebody has written stories that said that between uh, April 1st, uh, well, the last of March, I think the first one landed there, about the uh, 14th of March or something like that, because it had been shot all to pieces and it had to, they were going to have to ditch in the ocean. And if they ditched in the ocean, all the guys aboard would die. So, uh, but between those dates and uh, the end of the war in August, 2,500 times B-29s landed on that island. Whoa. So it, that's why it was important. Before I ask you maybe some more specifics about your time on Iwo Jima, did, did you have a difficult time talking about it ever after the fact, or have you always been able to be open about your, your, your fighting in the war? Well, I have said that <clears throat> uh, receiving the Medal of Honor forced me to have to talk about it. Uh, I was the first uh, Marine West Virginian to uh, come home with the Medal of Honor in 1945. So I became a public figure immediately. So, and I was going someplace three or four nights a week. Uh, the demand was tremendous. 
But I have said that that probably was the best therapy I could have had. Uh, World War II guys are, were no different than Vietnam or or uh, war on terror. Uh, individuals came back with what we call today PTS, but we didn't call it that. We called it psychoneurosis. So if you were diagnosed with a mental condition, uh, a breakdown, or you were having nightmares or flashbacks and all that sort of thing, and many of us did, uh, we called it psychoneurosis, which is a mental disorder. And <clears throat> there was no place to go. There were no VA medical facilities except one VA hospital in the whole state of West Virginia, and it was 230 miles from my home, and I never heard tell of it. I didn't even know it existed. Uh, we didn't have psychiatrists. We didn't have social workers. All we had were general practitioners and surgeons. So we had no place to go. And by being forced to talk about my experience because I'm getting questions from them just like I'm getting from you. Mm -hmm. They want to know the details. And I have said that was probably the best therapy I could have had. And had I not received the Medal of Honor, I would have gone back to the farm from whence I left, and I probably would have become a recluse or I wouldn't have talked to anybody. I didn't want to share that information with anybody. It's, it's not it's not very easy to talk about killing somebody. Mm -hmm. And with a flamethrower, to me, it was worse than any other kind of of killing. A bullet or a shrapnel or an explosion if it's bad enough, it's instantaneous. But with a flamethrower, it is not instantaneous. And the odor that you get from human remains, there is no other odor like it in the world, I don't believe. Is that a, a smell that you'll never forget? Absolutely. Absolutely. And for the first few years that uh, I was home, in fact, until 1962, uh, I was having the flashbacks and the nightmares and and uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, I don't know how my wife put up with me, but she had a lot of patience. She had more than I did. <clears throat> but and uh, then I had two girls, and and she helped them understand that I'm going to do things that they're not going to understand. And, uh, but in 1962, uh, I'd never been in church in my life. Uh, I had been to, uh, when I went in the Marine Corps, I had to go to uh, services on Sunday morning. Everybody did. <clears throat> and, uh, but, uh, I, it didn't mean anything to me. I, I went because I was ordered to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, 1962, uh, 
I finally found forgiveness for myself. That was my problem. I couldn't forgive myself for what I had to do. And uh, then I sought God, and God forgave me. I'm convinced that he no longer, if he ever did, hold that against me. So I found a release and a relief that I had never known. And I've been a Christian ever since. My complete life changed. I uh, became a different person. I never took another drink of alcohol. I never smoked another cigarette. Uh, I never used vulgarity again. My whole life changed completely, and I, I became a different person. Was that hard on your wife for you to make those changes, or was she glad you made those changes? No, she was, she was absolutely thrilled to death because she had been a Christian ever since she was a little girl. I've said I think she was born a Christian. But uh, she was a very dedicated person. She uh, took the girls to church every Sunday uh, and many other times of the church. And she worked in the church. She, she was a secretary to pastors in churches. But I would never darken their door. She couldn't get me to go. So she was absolutely thrilled to death when my life changed and I became a, a new guy. Mm-hmm. My children were also absolutely thrilled because uh, I was a I was an addicted smoker. I started smoking three packs of cigarettes a day, and uh, the girls you'd smoke in the car, and they just begged me, "Please, Daddy, don't smoke in the car." But I I did it anyway. But afterwards, I never did, and so they were tickled with that. Uh, they've been going to church and Sunday school and all that sort of thing, and now I'm going with them. So yeah, yeah, they were tickled to death. I'd like to take us to that battle uh, on Iwo Jima, and I'd like to find out, you know, well, when did you find out that you were needed, that you couldn't wait around, that you know, that y'all were, that you, uh, I guess, waiting on the ship, that you had to get out, and I don't know if you volunteered or someone volunteered you to use the flamethrower that day, and. Can you walk us through that? Well, yeah, I can do that. Uh, my citation, they give a citation with every Medal of Honor, and my citation says I volunteered, and I guess I did. <laughs> but <laughs> when we hit the beach at uh, Iwo, <clears throat> as I said, I was a corporal, and I had uh, six Marines who were demolition flamethrower guys. <clears throat> uh under my command, I was I was their supervisor. So, but they are basic riflemen, and until we had a use to use explosives or a need to use explosives or the flamethrower, they were just riflemen. My job primarily was to make sure that they had everything they needed to do their job as a flamethrower demolition man when they were needed. And the platoon leader and the company commander, uh, when they needed a flamethrower or a demolition guy to seal a cave or burn it out or burn out a pillbox, then they would call on those two guys and they would have to come back to headquarters to get the flamethrower and demolition stuff because they couldn't carry it with them all the time. They were riflemen. 
So my job was to make sure that they were ready to go and had everything they needed when they needed it. I had lost those guys. We hit the island on the 21st of February, and on the 23rd, they were all gone. I never did know whether they were killed or wounded. They just were not there anymore. And uh, we had lost so many of our uh, company, people in the company. Uh, our commanding officer had lost most of his officers. He only had a couple officers left that hadn't been wounded or killed. So he called for a meeting of all uh, what they called NCOs, non-commissioned officers. As a corporal, I was not classified in that group. But because so many of those uh, NCOs had been wounded or killed, the first sergeant told me I was to go to that meeting. So naturally I went. And we gathered in a great big shell crater that probably had been a bomb dropped at one point or a large uh, missile from a, one of the ships. But it was rather deep so that all of us could get down below ground level, so grazing fire, the Japanese couldn't, couldn't shoot us with rifles. And uh, we got down in that hole, and the company commander, Donald Beck, he was a captain, uh, was really, I think, looking for ideas and, and uh, some means by which we could break through the pill, pill boxes that had us stopped. We tried it for two days and couldn't get through because they, they had all the field of fire. We had no uh, anything to hide behind or under, and so every time we would try to break through the pillboxes, they would they'd knock us off. And we'd have to withdraw. Will you explain the pillboxes? A pillbox was a reinforced concrete pill uh, uh, bunker. They call them bunkers in today's world. Pillbox comes from Germany in World War One, really, and then they also used in World War Two. So I guess that's where we picked up the title pillbox. Okay. But it was reinforced concrete with uh, what we call rebar today, but back in those days they just called it uh, rods, iron rods, and they would put that in the concrete as they built the pillbox and a bomb or a bazooka, it it might knock some concrete off of it, but it's not going to crumble it or penetrate it. Mm -hmm. And in the front of every one of them, they had an aperture that was about six to eight inches in height, clear across the front of it, so that the Japanese could get in the pillbox. They could stick their rifles and machine guns out the aperture, and they had a whole range of a field out there that they could fire at. And all we had as a target when we were trying to approach the pillboxes was that aperture. That's all we could shoot at. Wouldn't do any good to shoot at the pillbox because a bullet certainly isn't going to penetrate it. Mm -hmm. So uh, they had built them in such a way that they were basically in pods of three and at least one of those three could see another pillbox, so that if you tried to get to one pillbox, another one is going to 
not only the one you're tra- attacking, but the one that can also see that area uh, is firing at you or shooting at you. So the Captain Beck asked me if I thought I could do something with a flamethrower about some of those pillboxes. And so far as I know, and as far as I've been able to learn, up until that time, we had not had an opportunity to use the flamethrowers because either the six guys got wounded or killed before they had an opportunity to put those into play. Because I had certainly hadn't given out any flamethrowers from headquarters company. Nobody had come by and you know, said, I need a flamethrower. So he asked me if I thought I could do something with a flamethrower about some of those pillboxes, and I've said constantly, I don't know what my reply was. Some of the guys in the hole later, after the campaign, said my reply was, I'll try. So he, he assigned four Marines out of the unit, to uh, give me protection while I'm trying to work my way near enough a pillbox that I can get flame in it. And uh, they were they were under my control. Once we uh, started the movement, the attack, they were under my control, and I placed, uh, placed them in various positions so that they could shoot at the pillbox that I'm going to try to burn out and uh, during the course of uh, four hours uh, I was able to eliminate seven of those pillboxes and I used six flamethrowers in doing so uh, we were trained that you just didn't waste your fuel you would shoot it in two and three second bursts which was just a huge ball of flame, and we'd shoot it on the ground and roll it toward the pillbox. If you shot it into the air, it wouldn't go anywhere because air resistance would stop it. So we would roll it into a cave or roll it into a pillbox. Interesting. Uh, How far away were you from the pillboxes? Well, it varied, of course. Uh, Some of them I got reasonably close but the most distance that you could get out of the flamethrower would be 25 to 30 yards max. And that would depend on the terrain that you were in at the moment. Uh, if you read my citation, and it's on, <laughs> it's on Wikipedia and Google oh, yeah. and all these others, but if you read my citation, there's one time when I was approaching a pillbox and it was too hot. I couldn't get to it. But I did see some smoke coming out of the top of it. I didn't know what was up there. I just saw some smoke. And so I went around to the, to the blank side of the pillbox, and they had piled sand up on the pillboxes so that if a mortar hit or a bomb hit, the sand would absorb most of the shock rather than the pillbox. So uh, the sand was piled up on the pillbox, and that enabled me to crawl up on top. And uh, there was a vent pipe up there, 
and it was big enough that I could stick the nozzle of my flamethrower gun down the nozzle, and I eliminated all those who were in the pillbox. But uh, about how many Japanese would be in a pillbox? It would vary. Uh, I know I have no idea because I never inspected them afterwards. <laughs> I didn't look in there. I didn't want anything to do with it. But uh, one report, and whether it's accurate or not, I have no idea. One report said one of the larger pillboxes, and some of them were 10 feet uh, square. Some of them were smaller. Uh, They all had a back door that uh, the Japanese could go in. Uh, There's reports that the... uh, Japanese, once they got in the pillbox, they were pinned in there so they couldn't get out. They couldn't escape. They they were going to die there or whatever. So I have no idea uh, how many. Um, In the seven pillboxes, I have absolutely no idea. So you were able to eliminate some of the enemy, and didn't some charge you? Was that the same time, same day? The charge yeah. of the bayonets. One of the one of the pillboxes I was approaching, and of course I'm with a flamethrower. You certainly crawl rather than get up and walk, because you are a good target when you get up with the big tanks on your back and that sort of thing. So you crawl mostly, and I was uh, crawling toward the pillbox, trying to get close enough to get flame in it. Whether they had run out of ammunition or whether they just decided they're going to get me, I have no idea. But all of a sudden, several of them, and I have no idea here again how many, came charging toward me with their rifles, and and I remember their bayonets. I remember seeing those. So I just blasted them with a big burst of flame. And, of course, they all died. With one kind of one burst? Yeah. Okay. Out of three second bursts, you know, or maybe maybe more than that. I don't remember. <laughs> I just remember that when I saw them coming, I just opened up and hit them with it. What ended the, you know that that battle that you were part of that day? How did it end? Well, once we once we knocked out those seven pillboxes, and here again, I'm just quoting my citation because. They didn't come to me and ask me any questions when the, the recommendation was made for the Medal of Honor. They uh, got with the four witnesses of other Marines <clears throat> who were present that day and saw what happened, so they had to give testimony as to what happened. My commanding officer had to make the recommendation. Uh, only an officer can recommend the Medal of Honor. A list of men can't do it. Once we got rid of those seven pillboxes, according to the citation, that opened up an area where we could get through and break through that that group of pillboxes that were uh, stopping us, and it was right near the airfield, and they built those there primarily to protect the airfield. Wow. So did any of those four, was it four Marines that were with you? Did, were any of them killed or hurt during that time? Yes, two of those Two of those gave their life that day, uh, protecting mine. So I have said ever since I got out of the Marine Corps and realized what I had and 
what happened and evaluated the situation. I have said over and over hundreds of times, the medal does not belong to me. It belongs to them. They gave all they had just to protect my life, and very possible. Had they not, I, I may not be here. So I've always said I wear it in their honor, not mine. Mm-hmm. Well, and to go along with that, I, I, will you explain what the Commandant of the Marine Corps told you, and, and why were you more nervous to meet the, him than you were President mm-hmm. Truman? Well, at least I was scared plumb out of my wits. Did he did he tell you that he said something like this does not belong to you? That's right. Yeah. One of the things he said is that medal does not belong to you. It belongs to all those Marines who never got to come home. Yeah. Yeah. What did President Truman say to you when he gave awarded you the medal? Well, he said to me and I, of course he said it to others too, but in different ways. He didn't use the same uh words with everybody because there were 13 of us that day and so he didn't say to every all the 13 the same words but he did say it to me and he said it to Jack Lucas who was only 17 years old on that day that uh, he would rather have this medal or that medal uh, one or the other than to be president of the United States. Of course, he was a World War One guy, been an artillery in World War One, so he knew he had a pretty good idea of what what the Medal of Honor was all about. How old were you during that battle? I was actually twenty two. I was twenty two in October. Uh, nope, I'm sorry. I was twenty one in October, and uh, I reached my twenty second birthday three days before I received the medal. Okay. So you were 21 when, when that happened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how far did you crawl, would you say? Did you have to crawl before you first encountered the enemy and started using the flamethrower? Flame I, I really don't know. There are some things about that four hours that have bothered me all my life. I've talked to couple or three psychologists, and they don't have the answer either. Uh, I can't remember, and I don't have the answer why, I can't remember going back and getting the other five flamethrowers. How I got them, I don't know. I am reasonably certain, since nobody gave witness to it, no one brought them to me, which meant that I had to go back to headquarters unit, wherever it was, because that's where we kept all of our supplies, our ammunition, our blasting caps, our explosives, our flamethrowers, our extra stuff. Headquarters is where that stuff was kept, and it moved along with us as we would go, uh, as we would advance forward. So somehow I went back and got five flamethrowers. Wow. Because the citation says I used six. But I don't remember how. I remember the first one very well. But the other five, it's just not there. Uh, 
one of the psychologists I talked to said that uh, if you make up your mind that you're not going to remember something, you won't. And I think that's what I did. <clears throat> it was so horrific, I didn't want to remember it. Mm -hmm. So I don't. Well, even immediately after it, what were your thoughts, or was it, I mean, were you kind of in some type of zone or trance there for a while because you were so affected emotionally by it? Or, or how did you, how did you respond the, the next few days? Well, after after we got broke through the pillboxes, we just went on fighting. I hadn't done anything special as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I was just doing my job. That's what I was trained to do. I did what I was trained to do. And we just went on. I didn't know anything about it. I'd never heard of the Medal of Honor. Didn't even know such a thing existed. Even the day I received it, I still didn't know what it was. And uh, so we just became routine after that. It was That was just routine business, as far as I was concerned. Well, what does the Medal of Honor stand for? What does it stand for? Yes, sir. Well, they say above and beyond the call of duty. And you can interpret that in many different ways. But that is the basic requirement to be recommended for the Medal of Honor, that something beyond what you would normally do as an individual. <clears throat> uh, one of the, uh, well, next to the last Medal of Honor recipient that we've had just recently, uh, he was a copter pilot in Vietnam. He got his medal, I think, 49 years after he owned it. He had been recommended for it, but uh, it was downgraded to uh, uh, Distinguished Flying Cross, so as they were viewing records, uh, they thought, well, this, this warrants a uh, Medal of Honor, and they upgraded it and awarded it to him. There will be another one on uh, October the 23rd. Uh, there will be a guy by the name of Rose uh, who will receive his medic uh, in Vietnam. He'll get his medal because it's been upgraded to a Medal of Honor. So it's something beyond what a person would normally do. And there are many, many instances where had there been an officer present capable of making a recommendation for a Medal of Honor, or in a, other situations where there was an officer but no witnesses, and there must be at least two witnesses before it can be considered, if there are no witnesses to the occasion, then they can't get a recommendation. But there's many, many instances where, had those two factors be, been present, witnesses and an officer, there would be more medals of honor. Just so happened they weren't there. How did the medal change how others in the, mil in the Marines treated you? Or did it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, of course, there's a number of Marines, just like I was, had never heard of the Medal of Honor. Even today, I run into Marines who have never seen the Medal of Honor. 
they have no idea what it is. Mm-hmm. Now they've they've seen it on, uh, you know, YouTube, Bluetube, YouTube, or <laughs> in boot camp. Now they have uh, uh, the crucible, and on the crucible uh, qualification, they'll have stations dedicated to Medal of Honor recipients, and they'll have a board there that outlines some of the things that that recipient did. But to an individual who's never seen one, I'm not quite sure it means anything to him. Like trying to explain to me gigabyte. <laughs> Just go ahead and try that. <laughs> well, I'm not the person to explain it, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, it wouldn't mean anything to me. I know the word. I've read the word of gigabyte, megabyte, all those. So that, but that doesn't mean a thing in the world to me. So I, I run into people all the time that have never seen a Medal of Honor, and they just want to touch it. Just touch it. So uh, it has a meaning, well, quote, I guess depending on who's writing the story, but uh, some individuals have said, writers have said, news people have said, We've had 42 million people serve in our armed forces from the Civil War on. And yet, we only have 5,599, uh, I guess it'll be uh, 6,000 uh, pretty soon, uh, to receive the Medal of Honor. So you take the percentage of the Medals of Honor compared to the people who have served, it's hard yeah, to make the difference. Very small, that's right. Yeah. Well, Mr. Williams, I know we're we're running out of time. I wanted to ask you also, were you, you know, the infamous flag raising, were, were you there when that happened? I was on the island when it happened, and it so happened the day I did the action that that uh, uh, I, medal, I received the Medal of Honor for that action was the same day the flag went up on Sirobachi, February the 23rd. Oh, wow. Yeah. But the first knowledge or inkling that I had that was anything happening was the Marines around me. We were getting uh, ready to try to cross that airfield that had no protection whatsoever. And uh, we were getting ready to try to cross that airfield. And Marines around me began saying something about a flag, and they were shooting their weapons into the air. kind of crazy moment and uh, I looked up at that point and I saw oh glory flying on Mount Suribachi but it was the actual second flag because the first one was only a 3 by 5 and the other one was a 4 by 6 I'm not sure we could have seen the 3 by 5 from where we were but that's my first inkling of the flag and it didn't mean a thing in the world it was just a (laughs) It was just old glory up there. It sounds like all of this this time you 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 didn't either have the time or you know you were just so busy doing biz taking care of business there was no time to sit around and take it in and and to realize what what you're doing and I guess the good that's happening. No, you're just absolutely not. No, because you're you're advancing constantly. Uh, sometimes you'd get a relief on the line to come back and um, maybe 
take a bath in your helmet, <laughs> which is not very good, but we had no no water, so uh, uh, we were very limited in water. So we'd come get relieved off of the line to come back and get a hot meal and uh, maybe uh, shave and take uh, uh, some kind of a cloth and try to wash your body off. But then the next day, you're right back at it again. Well, I'd like to ask you one, one last question to deal with uh, current day issues. Uh, have you Have you kept up at all with the news that's so hot right now with the NFL players and other athletes, professional athletes in particular, kneeling during the national anthem? Well, I've been asked that question a number of times since this thing started. And my only answer is, and I don't know any other answer, uh, we fought for the right for them to do that if they want to do it. Uh, that's why that's why we're free people and have the right to do what we want to do as long as we don't break the law. There is no law that says they must stand for the, for the national anthem. But the part that I cannot comprehend nor understand is how anybody in this country who have had all the privileges that they have had in growing up in a free country, protected by those who have sacrificed their life, how they can possibly do that and be be sane, I just do not understand, and I never will. My, I have said facetiously a few times, if we could just load them on an airplane and send them to Afghanistan for 30 days, I believe they would change their outlook about our country. Yeah, good point. Well, Mr. Williams, anything you'd like to add in closing? No, thank you very much for this opportunity. It's always uh, good to, to talk about it, and I hope it has some influence on some youth who will realize that they, too, have a life of freedom because others gave their lives for them.